1 Corinthians chapter 5, and, uh, and I've got to get moving. I've got a lot of ground to cover. Here's the thing. All of chapter 5 is really one central thought, so we're going to tackle the whole chapter uh, today. And as we get into it, really, the topic's all about being careful of the company that we keep. That's really the, the, the overall theme of chapter 5, is that you have to be very careful and cautious about the company that you keep. I read a recent online article. It suggested that you are the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. In other words, if you take uh, the personalities and the qualities and the character traits of all the, the five top people that you spend time with and you, you were to mold them all into one person, that one person would be you. Uh, it's an intriguing thought. I'm not sure if I fully believe in it, but uh, nevertheless, it's an undeniable fact that you and I, we become like those that we associate with, right? You discovered that, you spend time with people, you become like them. It's like the mother who took her young son shopping and after a whole day at the mall going from store to store, a clerk handed her son a, 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 a lollipop. And uh, the son took the lollipop and the mom said to him, Johnny, what do you say to the clerk? And he said, charge it. <laughs> and you know, this truism that we become like those who we associate with, it, it works either positively or negatively in our life, doesn't it? It can work for the positive, it can work for the negative. For me, I'll give you an example of a negative example. My, um, my best friend growing up, a guy by the name of Bobby Hansaker, and if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard stories about me and Bobby. And we got into all kinds of trouble. I mean, we, you know, used to set off M80s in the, in the sewers when cars would go by, and we would, you know, we set the neighbor's garage on fire one year, throwing fireworks. Uh, we used to take our bikes down to the school and ride around on the roof, uh, I mean, we, we, got, we got in tons of trouble. Uh, there was actually this one section of the roof, it was open, and we would, we would jump over this open, I mean, I, I cringe as a father now. I didn't realize how much trouble we used to get into until a couple of years ago, Bobby's parents, they had bought a house, they remodeled it, they invited us over for the housewarming party, and so the families are all there, and, and we were their neighbors across the streets, and my mom and dad are there, and we're, and we're swapping these stories about all the stuff that we used to do, all the shenanigans, and I'm like... Holy cow, we were, you know, we were trouble. And, you know, I figured it out. The common denominator in all the trouble I used to get into was Bobby Hansaker. <laughs> Bobby Hansaker was a bad influence. Now, you know, I envisioned Bobby Hansaker talking to his kids and going, you know, the, the common denominator, all the trouble I got into with that Ted Leavenworth, you know. But I say Bobby was the bad influence, and I'm sticking to it. That's my story. And, you know... Um, <laughs> The Bible says this about the company we keep. It says, uh, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And as we come now to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that is certainly the case. Now, if you're just joining us, let me kind of catch you up to speed. 1 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he planted in central Greece. Uh, They had gone off track. And, uh, you know, whenever you've got a growing church in a pagan culture, It's a constant challenge to get the people to think biblically and not to think culturally, and that's the case here in Corinth. It's a young urban church, it's growing, it's in a very immoral city, and as it grows, so do the problems that they encounter. And one of the problems of trying to be a Christian in such a pagan culture is that the world around you constantly tries to press you into its mold. You've experienced that, no doubt. Um... 
This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about when he warned the, the Christians in, in Rome. He said uh, in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that, uh, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, literally translated, it means don't let the world press you into its mold. And that's exactly the case here in Corinth. It's a pagan society. It's filled with rampant sexual immorality. And as we come now to chapter 5, that immorality has now pressed its way into the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you, and such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. Now that phrase, sexual immorality, it's, uh, it's the Greek word pornea. And, and obviously, the, the word pornographic in our English language comes from that word, pornea. And literally, here's what pornea means. It means sex that is forbidden by law. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The very word means that which is forbidden by law, you know? Um, sexual immorality, the term, it's a junk drawer word. It encompasses all sexual immorality, and the Bible uses this catch-all phrase because people are sneaky. You and me, we, we try and, you know, if the Bible doesn't specifically address our sin, we say, well, it didn't say, you know, that I couldn't do that. And so it uses, you know, God in his infinite wisdom, he uses this, this junk drawer sort of catch-all for sexual immorality. For instance, somebody says, well, you know, Jesus didn't specifically say anything about homosexuality. Well, you're right. But he didn't say anything specifically about child molestation either. And so, you know, to, to use the, the, the idea or the rationale that, hey, Jesus didn't specifically talk about this, well... The Bible has this catch-all, sexual immorality. And when the Bible talks about sex, it says don't do anything but get married. And it makes it very clear it's marriage between one man, one woman. The Bible couldn't be more expressly clear about that. And so the Bible says, hey, don't do anything but get married and love your spouse. And that's what this means. Anything outside of that is sexual immorality. So Paul says there's sexual immorality forbidden by God, which is in the church. Now, just in case, uh, you know, you, just so you have chapter and verse for the, the fact that this is immoral and forbidden by God, uh, when Paul says there's a, there's a man that has his father's wife, it's covered in Leviticus 18.8. We'll put it on the screen for you. It says this, The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. And so not only is this activity forbidden by God's law, very clearly, as, as you've just read for yourself, but Paul says it's even perverse to the Gentiles. Let me read it again. Uh, he says, it's actually reported, there's sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality is not as even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Paul says, hey, this is even perverse to the Gentiles, and it is. A man has his father's wife. I mean, that's like backward scary right there. And you say, well, what, you know, what's he talking? Is this, is this his mother? Is this his stepmother? I, I don't know. I don't care. Is it his mother? Is his mother? I don't know. It's Kentucky crazy. That's what it is. <laughs> you know, I got the song from Deliverance playing in my head <laughs> as I read this. 
Cicero, an ancient Roman writer, he said this. He said that this type of incest was an incredible crime and it was practically unheard of. You've, you've heard the saying, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Yet the Romans didn't do that. Okay, that's how bad it was. When the, when the outside world looks in and says, ooh, that's nasty, you're in trouble. You know, and this is, this is, this is the idea here. Now, if you believe the gay pride line, which says that two consenting adults have the freedom to do whatever they want, and who are we to judge? That's the, the gay pride's line. Well, then this would fit that criteria. And, and so, you know, the gay pride's response to, to this, you know, a man has his father's wife, is to say, hey, two consenting adults, and who are we to judge? But incredibly, what Paul is saying is that the church has that attitude. And, and he's like, this is, this is crazy. And his point is that nobody should have this attitude, let alone uh, the church. And so Paul goes on in verse 2, and he says, And you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. That phrase, puffed up, it's interesting. We, uh, we get the word bellows from that, the bellows of, uh, that you would use to stoke a fire. And it's used metaphorically. It just basically means being puffed up with pride. And this is what Paul is saying. He's saying there's this horrible sin, and you, you're prideful about it. Interesting word that he would use there. Your pride. You're puffed up. Your pride. Um, you know, you got the buttons, you got the bumper stickers, you've got the parades. And you know, we're tolerant. You know, we're diverse, we're open-minded, the church would say. Because, you know, God's a God of love. And, you know, who are we to interfere with, with love, you know? And so we're going to be tolerant, we're going to be open-minded to this. Paul says, hey, shouldn't you rather have mourned? You know, shouldn't you have been brokenhearted that this would be going on? Shouldn't you rather have the, that the person who did this have been taken away from you? It's interesting, if you, if you see that word, the, the two-word phrase, taken away from among you, there at the end of verse 2, um, literally what this means is to lift up and remove. Paul says, hey, you know, this is going on, you're proud about it, and really what you ought to have done is lift up and removed this person from among you. Now, I've got a story to illustrate this. I used to work with a guy in the fire department, and he came home one day, having, having worked an extended shift, and he, and, he, and he got home, and there in his house is his 16-year-old daughter, alone with her 18-year-old boyfriend. And they're on the couch. And, and thankfully, they're, they're, you know, they're making out on the couch. And, and he got there before uh, anything uh, sexually inappropriate uh, too much had taken place. But it was clear that he'd gotten there just in the nick of time. And so, you know, he, he, he sat down and he, he said hey, to the boy, you know, hey, let's have a cup of tea and let's talk. And, you know, what are all you dads are like, he didn't do that. No, he didn't. As this boy there now laying on top of his daughter, he grabs him by the hair, grabs him by the belt, physically picks him up, walks him to the door, and he physically threw him out the door. And I'm like, right on, Dad, that's good. Ain't no jury going to convict you, brother. Go for it. And this is exactly what he did. Now, you know, Paul here, he's not advocating physical violence. 
But he's motivated by the same heart. Here's what you got to get. I mean, we've already covered this. That, you know, what was the last week? We talked about the heart of a pastor, and he's there, and he wants to shepherd his flock, and he wants to care for his flock. And Paul here, shepherding, having the heart of a father, what he wants to do here is say, look, this punk is up to no good, and, you know, somebody needs to introduce him to the door. That's what Paul's saying. Now, seven times, I want you to take note, and we're going to get into this, but seven times Paul says what needs to happen here. He says he's a cancer and he needs to go. That's what he says. Verse 2, he says he should be taken away. Verse 5, he says, deliver him to Satan. Verse 7, he says, purge him out. Verse 9, he says, don't keep company with him. He says the same thing in verse 11. Don't keep company with him. Uh, again, in verse 11, he says, uh, uh, you know, don't, don't even eat with this guy. Uh, and in verse 13, he says, put away from yourselves the evil person. You say, man, that sounds so harsh. And yeah, we're going to get into that. But the idea here is that, you know, he's saying, look, this guy's not good for you. And that's the whole get of this chapter, by the way. It would be a mistake to come to 1 Corinthians 5 and say, well, it's about sexual immorality. Well, yeah, sexual, sexual immorality is the occasion, and it's a topic, and it's very serious, and we have to address it. But the bigger issue and the big idea of this entire chapter is the company that you keep. Be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good character, the Bible says. And so we need to be very careful about the company that we keep. And when there's someone in our midst who claims to be a believer, who is not acting as a believer, who indeed is a cancer on the body, that cancer needs to be cut out. And as harsh as that sounds, there's uh, actually a very good reason for it. But at this point, sort of in the text, what I want to do with you is I want to get you to prayerfully consider... Who is in your life right now who they profess faith in Christ, but they bring you down? Who is in your life right now who who causes you not to draw near to God, but they cause you, they're the Bobby Hansaker in your life spiritually, and they get you into trouble? Who is that person? Maybe God would say to you, man, you know what? You need to show that person the door. You know, they drag you down. They're getting you into trouble. And you know, Paul says something significant in the next verse. In verse 3, he says this. He says, For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan. And you know, (laughs) there's this nonsensical myth nowadays that, you know, unless you know me, unless you know my heart and my background and my struggles, that um, you can't really judge me. And, And it's just ridiculous. Paul goes, look, I'm not even there, and I'm judging the situation. I've heard enough. I've heard all I need to hear. And, and, and that's a problem. I made the call. You don't, you know, and, and the, the point is for us, you don't always need to get all the facts to, to be able to draw some black and white conclusions. You don't always need to get down to the, oh, you know, well, she's sleeping with her boyfriend. Well, now, before we judge, you know, we better find out, you know, what went... No, it's black and white. I mean, there are some things in life where you go, hey, this is the deal and that's sin. And the person will go, well, you know, you don't even... You, don't, you haven't even met me. I don't need to meet you. Well, you know, you really... You don't know the entire story. 
I know the part that matters. That's the deal. And the part that matters is you're engaged in sexual activity that the Bible forbids. What else is there to say? There, and, and, you know, the, the point is, well, I had a conversation, by the way, just recently with a, with a young pastor. We were talking about a similar situation, and, and he's telling me, you know, about this situation that's going on. And, um, and basically what he says is, well, you know, we can't really judge him because we don't know all the facts. I'm like, dude, i got to stop you right there. You're wrong. Because the facts that you do know are enough to, 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 that there's nothing that they could say that would, that would justify their actions. You have to call them on this sin because that's your job as a pastor. And if you take the attitude, well, you know, it's all whatever, relative, and we, gotta, you know, we don't, can't really judge him. I actually took him to this verse. I'm like, look, you need to understand. There are some things. Paul goes, hey, I'm not even there. That's sin right there. We've got to deal with that. And, uh, and, you know, it's, it's that way. You know, the Bible isn't subjective. That's my point. And this is what we need to hear. It doesn't work on a sliding scale. You know, the Bible doesn't say, hey, no sex with your stepmom unless she's really hot. You know, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say, you know, hey, you can't have sex with your boyfriend unless, you know, you're really, really, really in love and uh, you know you're going to get married. And I guarantee you, that that word was for somebody here today. You know, the Bible doesn't say, hey, avoid even the appearance of evil and flee your youthful lusts. It doesn't say that, but, you know, if it's most convenient for you, yeah, I know, avoid the appearance of evil and flee your youthful lusts, but, you know, if you need to shack up with your boyfriend or with your girlfriend because, you know, it makes sense, you know, it's so much cheaper, we could share the rent, and, and you know, I'll counsel with a couple in pre-marriage counseling and, and just warn you, if you come to see me and you want me to do your marriage ceremony, one of the first questions I'm going to ask you is, hey, are you living together? And so I'll ask a couple, hey, are you living together? I used to ask them if they were sleeping together first. I've changed that. I ask them if they're living together first now because I want to lead them into an ambush. So I go, hey, are you, <laughs> are you, are you living together? And, uh, you know, a lot of times I'm shocked. They're, they're like, yeah. I'm like, well, you know... <laughs> The Bible says that you're to avoid the appearance of evil. And living together appears evil. You know? and, and also, you know, the Bible says that you're supposed to flee your youthful lusts. And so living together, man, that's, you, you can't go on a diet in a donut shop. That's a dangerous place for you to be. You know? And, and it, you know, inevitably, here's the argument. You know, well, it's just so much shit. We're saving for a wedding. And, you know, it just it defers the cost. It's just so much cheaper for us to live together. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to have to maintain two households when we're going to be living together anyway. And so then I drop the bomb, the ambush question, and I say, because here's what they do inevitably too. They say, well, you know, we're sleeping in separate rooms. And so the ambush question, you know where I'm going, the ambush question is, uh, so are you a virgin? Awkward silence. No. Are you a virgin? No. Have you had sex together? Yeah. When was the last time? And then it gets really awkward. (laughs) And then I'll say, let me ask you this question. Have you had sex in that house that you live in? And, you know, what do you think 100% of the time the answer is? Yes. I have never once had somebody say no. 
I mean, they don't even have the courage to lie to me. They just say, yeah, we are, you know, this is, and I'm like, come on, really? I mean, you've already, so you've, you're telling me, you've, you've made up in your mind all of the reasons why the scriptures apply to everybody else, but they don't apply to you. And now what you're doing to, to console yourself and to justify it is you're saying, oh, but, you know, we can do that because there's, the, there's all of these extenuating circumstances and reasons and, you know, the Bible's not black and white and I could sort of meander it. But the, the very excuse that you give is not even based in truth or fact. You see, and we do this in our life all the time. Everyone thinks they're, exception, they're, they're the exception to the rule. And another point of application for you today, again, is... What rule do you think that you're the exception to? What circumstance, what situation in your life, and I trust the Holy Spirit already speaking to you, what are you the exception to? to what rule are you the exception to? You know, um, you're sleeping with your boyfriend and you're justifying it. Now, God knows my heart. He knows we're in love. You're shacking up for all the reasons I just said. You're watching sexually explicit material. You're justifying it. Well, you know what? We watch it together as a couple. Everybody thinks they're the exception to the rule. It's quiet in here. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And so Paul says this. He goes, you know what? I don't need all the facts. The facts I've got right now, they're plenty enough. I've passed judgment. And so he continues in verse 5, and he says this. He says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now you say, well, that sounds cruel. No, it's actually a a very, very loving thing for Paul to do. See, because Christians, guys, they have two options. They can repent, or they can be disciplined. That's our options as Christians, repentance or discipline. And if you repent, then there's love, then there's support, then there's grace, then there's mercy. These things are available to those of us who will repent. And this is the get of a Christian. Day by day, the Holy Spirit will show up in your life and he'll convict you of sin in your life. If you're in tune with the Holy Spirit, it will be a daily process. For some of us, it's an hourly process. It's a minute-by-minute process. You know, I watch the news. It's a second-by-second process. I'm losing my temper. I'm yelling at the TV. I'm, you know, hey, hey, slow to wrath. You know, this is is the idea there, Pastor Ted. Um, And, you know, if you respond to the chastening of the Lord with repentance, then the church doesn't push you away. Then the church pulls you closer. We're going to walk with you. We're going to acknowledge that we're all sinners. We're going to help you get on track. That's what we're going to do. But if you're unrepentant, then the only option for you, if you claim to be a believer, that's an important distinction, is that it's time for discipline. And that's where Paul left it in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. If you remember, he says, look, shall I come to you with a rod? Or shall I come to you in love and gentleness? As a good father, hey, the option's yours, man. Here's the deal. You're in sin. Which way is it going to go down? Are you going to repent or is it time for discipline? So the repentant person gets the tender hand of love, but this guy that we're reading about here in chapter 5, he's unrepentant, and so he gets the rod. And the rod means that he gets handed over 
to Satan. That's how it works. And the handling of him over to Satan, here's how it works practically in the church. You don't get the privilege to continue to be in the church and have Christians love you and be in community with you. That's what it means to hand somebody over to Satan. They're caught up in sin. They're, they claim to be a believer, but they're not changing their, their pattern. They're not repenting. You reach a point where you say, all right, this is where our fellowship ends. This is where you go your way and I go my way. And I'm going to turn you over to Satan. And Christians have a really hard time doing that. But the fact is we need to do that. We, we can't support and nurture you in a life of unrepentant habitual sin. Because then if you're unrepentant and you're in habitual sin, you're not fit for the church, so now it's time you must leave the church. And outside the church, you can run with Satan. And let's just be honest, you want to run with him anyway. And so it's just a matter of saying, that's where you are. That's what you're doing. You refuse to repent. You're giving lip service and saying you're a Christian, but there's really no transformation in your life. So you know what? Go. And, and the, the, the process is, outside the church, you're, you're, the hope is that they'll come to repentance. That eventually, that that person who's caught up in sin is going to say, you know what? I miss my church. I miss my family. I miss my friends. I miss the loving community that, that I once had. And, and here's the big thing. I understand that I'm missing it because I sinned. Not because they're being a jerk. Not because they don't love me. And see, and you guys got to get this because a lot of times we in the church, we're like, oh, we got to love him. We're like bleeding hard and I want to just help this guy. You can't help somebody that doesn't want to be helped. And so the, the thing is, is that when you turn him over, you're turning him over to Satan. And, and I want to say this as carefully as I can. And please hear my heart on this, okay? You're not saying, you know, Go to Hades. You're not, you're, not, you're not being brutal to them and saying, you know, you're dead to me kind of thing. What you're doing is you're saying, look, you want to go in that direction and I can't stop you and all the lip service in the world's not doing you any good, so, so you got to go. The, the hope isn't that the person's going to be destroyed, but that it's going to destroy their desire for sin. That's the whole idea. And that's what, that's what Paul means here when he says, just deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What you want to destroy is that flesh nature. And so you say, go in that direction. You want to go out? You want to party all night? You want to call yourself a Christian and drink yourself into oblivion? You're going to do it without me. And you know what? You're going to do it outside of the church because you're not welcome here. And the hope is that this person will be beaten up by Satan to the point where they recognize, I need to go back. I need to go home. Now, it's hard to get the church to go along with this. It really is. Because for me as a pastor, a lot of times when we're at this level of church discipline, it's involving me and the elders. And we're sitting down and we're saying, this person has a profound problem. And so now it's a matter of, you know, the members of the church saying, oh, we love him and we care about him. We're trying to minister to him. And I'm like, dude, you got you to gotta hear me. You have to cut off this relationship. Now, for time's sake, let me put the scripture up on the, on the screen for you. But Romans 16, 17, and 18. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says. Paul speaking. Now, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned, and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. Now, 
A lot of people, when you quote this verse, they'll say, well, wait a minute, that just has to do with teaching false doctrine. I wasn't teaching false doctrine. Okay, well, here's what I would say to that. Yes, it has to do with teaching false doctrine, but what is the way that all of your kids learn best? Anybody. By example, by what you do. And so when we draw the line, when the brother is in sin, and, we're ta- and I want to be very clear, I'm not talking about somebody who comes to our church who's unsaved. We're going to talk about that uh, here in a minute. I'm talking about somebody who says they're a Christian. So they come into the church, and they're, they're nursing a hangover, and it's just a regular practice. This is, this is Johnny regular for them, man. It's, it's, they're drinking all the time. They're in habitual sin. And, and so what they're doing... They're causing divisions and offenses, which is contrary to the word, because what they're doing is they're leading you astray by their example. And so for what we as a church body do in this situation is we say, all right, this has run its course. We've addressed this. We've gone to this person multiple times. They are unrepentant. And there reaches a point when we say they're outside of fellowship. And you say, man, that's harsh. No, Jesus said to do that. Matthew chapter 18. He talked about the process that you go to somebody who's in sin. And you go to them and you bring somebody else to them. You finally, it goes before the church and they go to them. Ultimately, if they will not repent, you put them out of fellowship. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. And so a lot of times we'll run up against interference and we have to meet with, with, with people, with members of the church. Uh, and it, it's a, it takes a matter of weeks and sometimes even months because the, the church say, oh, it's just so mean and so cruel. No, it's loving. And we're doing this because our hope is that person being put outside of fellowship will come to a train wreck, which is the inevitable place if they're going to go in that direction. And in that place of train wreck, like the prodigal son, they're going to say, you know what, I had it better in my father's house. And they're going to come back and we then are going to receive them because now they're repentant. And so now we say, come in, be part of the loving fellowship and community of the body of Christ. And we celebrate it and we announce to, hey, you know, Joe has come back and he once was, you know, and we kill the fatted calf and we have just the big celebration. That's the way biblically it's supposed to go. Now, not only that, not only do we need to put the person out of fellowship for those reasons, but another very good reason to put this guy out of the church, well, Paul addresses it in the next verse, verse 6. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, uh, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's what Paul is saying. He uses this example of leaven. And leaven is yeast. It's this picture of sin. Now, now, just in case you haven't heard the, the, the description, here's how yeast works. It takes a little tiny bit. You put it in the dough. And it permeates the entire dough. And what yeast does is it actually makes the dough rot. And as this rotting process takes place, these gases are released and the dough rises. When you bake a loaf of bread and you cut into it, you know all the little dimples that are in that, all the little pockets that are in bread? Those are gas bubbles that, you know, now have been opened when you cut that bread open. All those little nooks and crannies that your butter flows into so nicely. 
That is the, the rotting fermentation process of yeast working its way through the dough. And it permeates everything. Here's the other thing. It lasts, well, perpetually, as long as it continues to come into contact with the dough. You know, if you buy uh, sourdough bread, pioneer sourdough bread, do you know where that originated? Back in the 1800s. And, and what they did is they had this original batch, the mother batch or whatever they call it, and, you, and they make this bread. And what they do is they take a little tiny pinch of the loaf, pinch of, the, of the, the, the dough out of this batch, and then they go and they make a new batch of dough and they put that pinch of dough in the new batch. And the fermentation process and it, and it permeates and it goes. So now they're going to take that bread and they're going to bake it and they take a little bit of that dough and they stick it in the next batch. And they've been doing that since the mid-1800s. When you bite into Pioneer bread, part of the dough that made up the actual loaf that you're eating originated back in the mid-1800s. And they just take it from, from dough lump to dough lump to dough lump. What a picture of sin. Sin permeates. It affects everything. It's like a cancer in the body. And so what Paul is saying here is very clearly, purge out the old leaven. You got to remove the sin. It has to be out. And he gives an interesting illustration here. He says, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven or the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What he's talking about here is the Passover feast. And, you know, part of the Passover ceremony included that you had to clean the house of all traces of leaven, and you couldn't eat anything with leaven for a whole week, and you had to put blood on the doorposts of your house so that when the angel of death came, it would pass over your house. And it's very symbolic. It's, it's looking forward to Jesus Christ, who removes our sin, that's the blood on the doorpost of the house, as well as our part not to abide in sin, and by, you know, making sure that the, the leaven is removed. Uh, and so, where Paul is going with this is he's making it clear that at a certain point, Christians need to judge unrepentant Christians. It's that simple. Some of you will struggle with this, and you'll say, you know what, Jesus didn't, you're saying that I should judge Christians. Didn't Jesus say not to judge? Yeah, he did. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It's Matthew 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1. He says, judge not that you not be judged. But what you have to understand is the context in which he said it. So let me put uh, verses 1 through 5 up on the board, or the following verses. He says, Judge not that you not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but you do not consider the plank in your own eye? Here's the idea. He's talking about hypocrisy. He's saying, don't judge in hypocrisy. He's saying, if, if you approach a person and you say, you know, my wife and I were talking about you last week after I came home from my adulterous affair and quit beating her, and we decided that you've got a bad marriage. You know, that's what Jesus is talking about here. Don't be a hypocrite like that. See, if we live like that in hypocrisy, well, then I never have to deal with my own sin because I can just look at you and talk to you about your sin. That's the point Jesus was making. But in the context of this, when you honestly commit to being serious about your faith and your walk in Christ and you commit to growth and accountability in Christian community, well, Jesus says then that judgment is part of the package. 
It just is. You judge yourself, and then you judge others. That's the point. And some of you are still struggling with this. You're saying, man, I'm still not convinced. I'm still weirded out about you talking about judging people. All right. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my epistle. Now, by the way, when he says, I wrote to you in my epistle, he's referring to uh, another epistle that preceded this one. 1 Corinthians is actually 2 Corinthians. Uh, We don't know where this epistle that he's talking about is. It's been lost to time. You can speculate as to why. Maybe he wrote it when he was in the flesh. That's my personal take on it. He was so mad at the Corinthians that his first first epistle to him was filled with maybe just a sinful rant. You losers, you're blowing it. You know, but at any rate, he says, Look, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now he's going to clarify what he meant. Verse 10, he says, Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. What he's saying is that he's saying, Look, I'm not telling you to judge non-Christians. And as Christians, we do that all the time. As Christians, we get this backwards. And what we have a tendency to do is to judge the unsaved world and we give our Christian brothers a pass, even if they're involved in gross sin. And we do this in the name of grace and whatever we want to call. I just want, you know, I love him. I want to be a loving brother. Paul's saying that's backwards. See, because it's hard enough for Christians to act like Christians and we have the Holy Spirit. So if you've got the unsaving world, and maybe you're here, and you've not surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, which I would say, welcome, I'm glad you're here, and you're welcome here. And you don't have your whole life together, and maybe your neighbor drives you crazy, and he goes out drinking all the time, and you're trying to talk to him about, man, it's dangerous, and you're putting your life in danger, and all your money's going into a bottle, or whatever it is. If he doesn't know Christ, that's not the... Don't pass go, don't collect a hundred bucks, whatever it is, you've got to talk to him about his issue. He needs Christ first. So Paul's saying, look, I'm not talking about the the world. The world's going to behave like the world because that's what the world does. Um, But he says, verse 11, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. He makes it very clear. I'm talking about Christians. They call themselves a Christian. Don't keep company with them if they're sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those who are outside? Do not judge those, uh, I'm sorry, do you not judge those who are inside? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, you judge those who are inside. That's the point he's making. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil persons. Here's the deal. Paul's making it very clear. And he's saying, look, you need to have Christian judgment. Judgment starts in the house of the Lord. And we as a loving body, we need to love one another enough that, hey, if you're in sin, that I need, be mindful of my own walk, yes, but I need to love you enough to come to you and say, man, you are in sin, and we need to do something about it. And you need to love me enough to do the same thing. It needs to happen. (sighs) And, you know, many people still, they're uncomfortable with this idea of judgment. And they're like, you know, I just, I'm still weirded out about, you know, judging. And we judge all the time. Seriously, we judge all the time. If somebody comes up and they say, you know, I'm, I'm a convicted child molester. Can I, uh, can, I, can I teach children? No. It's a judgment. Well, you're judging me. You bet you're 
Booty, I'm judging you. Yes, sir. You know, if I'm driving down the road and uh, you're hitchhiking on the side of the road and you look like, you know, the Unabomber, I'm not picking you up. Well, you're judging me. You bet it. I'm judging you. See, we judge all the time. And so what I'm talking about is in the, the church, we, from time to time, we've got to make those judgments about who we keep company. We, we have to make those judgments about uh, the, the fellowship that we're going to have here at church. And we have to make a judgment about, listen, man, I've gone to you, your friend's gone to you, the leadership has gone to you, and you are unrepentant and you continue to go in this direction. We're making a judgment call here. It's time for you to go. And let the world have its way with you. And God, we hope you come back. See, here's what I would say to you in closing. Hell is a place of radical hospitality. Everybody's welcome. But the church cannot be. The church can't be a place where we, we radically are hospitable to everybody who, who calls themselves a brother and wants to live any way they want to. It has to be a place of conditional fellowship where sin is judged. It absolutely has to be. And I would say to you, if, you, if you're here today, and you would say, you know what? I'm a piece of work. I got so many issues. My issues have issues. I'm just, I, I, and I'm a Christian, but I'm a blow it. And help me. And you come with a humble attitude. Our response is, welcome to Reliance Church. You're just like us. You're just like everybody else here. And we welcome you. We're all sinners saved by grace. We're all working out our salvation with fear and trembling. This is a place to do it. And if we're going to have a humble attitude and an attitude of a willingness, not that we're perfect, not that we don't fall, but the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times. May fall seven times, but he gets back up again. So if you're here today and that's you, then, then, you're, then you're welcome. My question for you is, are you a Christian? Have you repented of your sins? Have you put your faith in Jesus? And do you want to change? Do you want to repent? Do you want to get better? And if that's your heart, then you're welcome here. And together, we're going to seek the Lord. If you're dealing with a sin issue here and you come in with a repentant heart and a humble heart that says, I need work, I, I, I keep blowing it. That that I want to do, I don't do. That that I don't want to do, that's what I do. I need help and I'm going to humble myself. If that's you, I mean, we will get you in counseling. We'll get you resources. We'll get you plugged into home fellowship. We will labor and strive with you, absolutely. But if you're going to come here and call yourself a believer and, and then you're going to engage in a habitual life of sin, you should expect at some point somebody's going to ask you to leave. And that sounds harsh, but please know that it's love. Because what we're doing here, guys, we're not playing church. We're called to be the church. And church means that we change. Because can I just tell you, and you guys know this, the world has seen enough hypocrisy. The world has seen enough people who call themselves Christians and live like Hades, and the church is a laughingstock. Because there's not enough churches willing to say, no, this is the standard and we're going to live to this standard and when we fall, we're going to humble ourselves and we're going to have loving brothers and sisters who encourage us to that standard, but we're not going to wink at sin and it's not going to be a place that that happens. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I would tell you that as we pray and partake of communion today, I'm going to give you the opportunity just to pray and humble yourself and, and receive Christ. 
And if that's you, you can enter into Christian community and Jesus will meet you. He will equip you and he will guide you into a, a life of, of, uh, of blessing. But he's not going to bless your sin. It starts with, with humility and a humble, absolute commitment to the Lord. And if you're here and you're, not, and you're just not interested in what I've just said, if you're like, eh, spare me, then I would say to you in love, find another church because this isn't for you.